Defining the legacy of Reconstruction continues to vex historians. The years immediately following the Civil War were rife with racial violence and the proliferation of black codes that took the place of slavery in subjugating free blacks across the South. Those post-war years also witnessed the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, measures aimed at establishing black citizenship and black male suffrage. In this episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to William Blair about his new book, The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. Blair's work examines the role the Freedmen's Bureau played in documenting racial violence in the South. This critical scholarship demonstrates that racial violence was not only widespread, but quickly developed into overt political terrorism. Our interview picks up with Dr. Blair explaining the origins of the Freedmen's Bureau. Yeah, the Freedmen's Bureau came into being in March of 1865. It was legislated by Congress, and it was using military officers. So anytime we talk about the Freedmen's Bureau, it's really a military agency that is under the War Department. And what the theory was that these gentlemen could be posted in communities throughout the South, and that their main mission was really to aid in the transition from slavery to freedmen, or freedom for the African Americans who had been enslaved. And so at the beginning, their biggest missions were to educate, meaning start schools. Uh, it was to make sure they had enough subsistence. It was to have hospitals. So there were all these various um, arms of the Freedmen's Bureau that was in these communities with schools, banks, hospitals, churches. They were actually even instituted to, to try to help recreate marriages uh, for, for uh, enslaved peoples, formerly enslaved peoples. So it was really a wide gamut of mission at the time. Way down the list and almost inconsequential when it was originated was um, to make sure that there was justice in the South. That then would become more and more important of a mission later as the South became, and when I say South, in this case, I mean the Confederate South, uh, became ever more resistant uh, to what the federal government wanted um, in the, the post-war world. So the Bureau was there in many Southern communities, although not all, but uh, they had you know, usually captains stationed in the communities. Well, so, I mean, you touched on the major challenge for mm -hmm. the Bureau. They're operating in the formerly Confederate mm -hmm. South, and they're not welcome. There's another challenge, though. I mean, they're not well-funded, right? I mean, they, they have a personnel problem. They don't have any right. money. Can right. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and when Congress enacts this legislation and gives them all this mission, they give them no money. <laughs> they actually had no appropriation for it. The, the assumption was that it would come out of the Army's. Uh, hide, really, since they were a military unit. Uh, so what that means is that they go into these communities. Generally, you had a captain in charge, and he would have a certain amount of aides uh, and maybe even some soldiers detached to him, although uh, typically not many. And so what they often had to do just to even have enough people to fulfill their mission was to hire locals. Uh, they Without money, it made it tough, so they actually had to rely on many former Confederates at times, uh, hiring sometimes the people who had been enslaving uh, African Americans and using them to help uh, fulfill their mission. So it put – and they, the Freedmen's Bureau people even realized it at the time. There were officers who said, well, this is nuts. You know, we really shouldn't be having these people, meaning white Confederates – helping or trying to help or pretending to help 
uh, African-Americans who they had just recently enslaved. So it made it a, a strange partnership sometimes. Although I have to say that the Bureau itself, meaning uh, the white officers in particular, uh, were generally pretty um, committed uh, to their cause. Uh, and I have a, a, a line in the book that I think summarizes not only the attitudes of the officers then, but maybe even much of the North, when uh, I could say honestly that they probably did not believe in equality of the races, but they actually were committed to equality before the law. And that was going to create quite a difference uh, for what was going to happen in Reconstruction. Now, obviously, the title of your book is Murders and Outrages, and this mm -hmm. is what's going on in the South. Murders referring to murder, outrages right. referring to assaults, and right. it's widespread. Um, and you, you sort of go out of your way and spend some time talking about rural versus urban violence. And I, I thought that that was... Well, why is that important? Why is it important to make that distinction when talking about this? It's important because we know, for example, of riots. They, they, riots, anytime you see that word, it means black people being killed. And it's better to say massacres. Uh, and we know that in New Orleans and in Memphis in the summer of 1866, there were these so-called riots that were actually massacres. And um, they're very famous. And they're in every textbook. They're in Foner's book. They're in... Anytime you mention Reconstruction, they'll come up. If it weren't for the Freedmen's Bureau, though, who was watching what was going on in these communities and then eventually starting to report on the violence that was being experienced there, not until the, uh, September of 1866 was a, a mission for them to do it, but they were looking at this stuff anyway. Quite honestly, there would be so much of this violence that would never have been recorded. It would have never come to the fore. Um, I know that for a fact because one of the major massacres in the book in New Orleans, or excuse me, Louisiana, even today is not known by many of my colleagues. And even today is not re reported in the New York Times or the Washington Post whenever they talk about violence against black people in Reconstruction. So what we have known about black racial violence in the post-war South has been scarcely the tip of the iceberg until you look at things like the record of murders and outrages. Right, right. So what's so interesting is that the dynamics politically in the North, I mean, you've got uh, radical Republicans, you have Democrats, you have conservative Republicans. So you have a whole lot of different people believing different things. And so the Freedmen's Bureau mm -hmm. is tasked with, you know, provide us with this evidence, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so that's what they begin to do. But, you know, Oliver Howard, who's at the head, right? right. He, 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 it's very interesting in the book. I mean, he talks about like, how am I going to make this case? What are, what is he, how does he try to make the case? And what, what is he aware of in making that case? Well, he was aware of it in fighting for even appropriations for Congress, um, in trying to prove that there was a need for the Bureau. Uh, he was looking more, uh, universally, yet the, um, the conclusions that he made actually dealt also with violence, and he eventually started to push for more recording of violence. So the, 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 summary, the summary is this. He realized, first of all, that there was a great denial of what was going on in the South. And in this case, it was mostly Democrats in the North. It wasn't, we're not even talking about rebels or <laughs> Southerners. We're talking about Northern people. And then even in a case of some places like even the New York Times was not buying the fact that there was widespread violence in the South. So Howard was aware of the fact that it was a real conundrum. 
if I use figures and numbers, as he would say, you know, people just sort of zone out. They, they find it boring and they weren't, they weren't going to pay attention. And yet if I use qualitative um, material, meaning letters and uh, testimony from people, that would be dismissed as biased. So he was aware that he had to do kind of both. He had to combine qualitative testimony, eyewitness testimony, with numbers in order to try to make the case that, and we're talking about just trying to make the case of violence existed, uh, which unbelievably a lot of people were not willing to accept. And when they did accept it, it was often, it's spontaneous, it's random. It's, it's it, just part of American culture, and that's what they would say. And it was, um, later it would develop into a more highly uh, skilled propaganda campaign to say that, no, it was actually black people who were causing this. They were, you know, getting out of their orb, and they were forcing us uh, to meet their uh, unrest with violence. But in your scholarship and other recent scholarship, proves quite well that this is not emotional it's not random it's political it is political warfare and and terrorism Mm -hmm. um which which is uh exactly what it was and in fact there was uh, i argue an insurgency that was going on even before the ku klux klan uh came into being and that insurgency is being conducted in the in the halls of um, sheriff's offices police departments local courts uh where they would not well, the biggest example I have in the book is one Mary Stewart. This I use with students all the time, too. It, she, it really struck me. Mary Stewart is a African-American woman who has a dispute with a former owner. It's actually the son of a former owner. He cuts her, knifes her four times uh, on each arm, in the side, and so on. So he almost kills her. He gets unusual. He gets arrested for it, which didn't happen a lot. He gets sent to uh, New Orleans to face trial. Intimidation occurred in between, and so the woman in question never showed up because probably he would have killed her or his cronies would have killed her. When when that happens, he is – the charges are dropped, and he is immediately put on the grand jury. Now, what does that mean? The grand jury heard evidence from uh, officers of the court – as to whether there was enough um, evidence to have a trial of any kind. So they are the arbiters of crime in the community. So here's this guy who's almost killed this woman, who certainly, according to even the judge, and probably intimidated her not to show up for trial. And he's rewarded with a position on the grand jury to decide what is really a crime in that community. That's what I mean by an insurgency. It's not just carried out through guns. It's also a political campaign waged even through um, courts and, and the mechanisms of so-called justice. When you think of popular depictions of military occupation of the South, you think of the powerful Union Army there, right. you know, breathing down the mm-hmm. necks of uh, ex-Confederates. But in reality, it's just like what you said. I mean, there's even one instance in the book where Freedmen Bureau property is destroyed or, you know, mm-hmm. stolen, and the locals go, so what? So, we're not going to yeah. do anything about it. No. Nope. Um, you know, or, or the, the poor Freedmen's Bureau agent who was, who was, uh, basically jailed and, uh, had to be freed by the military because they were just keeping him in this little cage and so on. So yeah, the community was really, there was a widespread effort not to have the kind of changes that the federal government wanted to have. When was, when was it most likely, when were, 
when did violence happen most often? I think mm-hmm. you talk about. It escalates in 1867, uh, and it escalates uh, not quite right away. What happened was that in January and February of 1867, Congress, and especially in the Senate, is trying to decide of whether to send the army back in and what, what to do with the South, because it, it, Reconstruction wasn't working. Um, Johnson was too lenient, and that lenience was being um, exposed in all of this violence. And again, the violence was occurring not just against black people, but against white unionists. And when I say white unionists, that could be northerners who were trying to resettle in the South, or uh, white, even former Confederates who were not on board with um, resisting uh, the federal government. So these white unionists were being persecuted too and being shot down. In Texas, during a period of a year or more, there were actually more white people killed than black people by just a small margin. So it was a widespread campaign to try to um, affect the political power balance in the South. Well, anyway, the Senate comes along in uh, in February of 1867. They're arguing about whether to send troops back in. And by March of 1867, they override a veto by the president to create the Reconstruction Acts. And what those acts do is send the military in to deliberately reconstruct the political situation in the South. And what does that mean? That means they're to register voters. So think about that. If we think about it today, even though there's not a great military presence, what if you had to go to an army officer and enroll yourself uh, to vote? Uh, They are there enrolling massively African-Americans. Those African-Americans are going to vote. And as you know, uh, they weren't voting in the North <laughs> at that time either. So here's the military saying, we're going to enroll African-Americans to vote. We're going to enroll selectively white um, uh, people as well. By selectively, I mean, if you couldn't take the oath of loyalty, you weren't going to be allowed to vote. Um, for a while, it seemed to tamp down violence. There was at least a pause. I mean, you could tell that the white South, the Confederate South, was kind of getting their breath and trying to figure out, okay, this is new. What do we, what's going to happen? At the time, they tried to boycott elections and try to scuttle Reconstruction through uh, trying to show that uh, the union was meddling with the sacred uh, right of voting. That didn't work in 1867. Um, power was changing. And so by the end of 1867, you start to see the rise of the Klan and you see the light bulb go on in, in, in Confederate heads. This wasn't working. What we had to do is ratchet up the killing. And by the time you get to 1868, when African-Americans are going to be voting for the first time in a presidential election, you start to see what we all know happened in the South, which is massive intimidation to try to affect voting. Now, this sort of touches on some of your other work, but I think it all fits in here well. What? Where, and this is a very general question. Where does the 14th Amendment fit into all of this? Well, as um, uh, Dr. Gallagher said earlier uh, in this session, um, there are huge sections of the 14th Amendment are constructed to punish the rebels. There's no question about it. Um, if, uh, if you look, you see that there was a lot of desire for vengeance after the Civil War, but for lots of political reasons and practical reasons, such as we want to put the country back together again, there wasn't massive hangings of rebels. 
But that didn't mean they got off scot-free. The 14th Amendment, everybody pays attention to the first section, which they should. It um, overturned, basically, um, Taney's court, who decided that African-Americans were not citizens of the United States and basically said that anybody born here were citizens. So everybody's familiar with that. And they are also familiar with that that gave the federal government the ability to intervene and protect personal liberties and personal rights. But if you look at the second and the third and the fourth sections of that amendment, what you see are, are is a deliberate attempt to, in Section 2, control who could vote in the South, meaning uh, representation in Congress. Um, they were saying that if you didn't allow people, black people to vote, we were going to reduce by that proportion your representation in Congress. It was kind of a, a stick to say, you better enact black voting. Um, and then in the third section, and this was being applied in the South by the Freedmen's Bureau and other military officers, even before the 14th Amendment was actually ratified, they went down and they used the third section to say, okay, if you had not been a loyal person during the Civil War, you can't vote. We're going to disqualify you, not from just voting, but from holding public office. And that was really the key. They wanted to keep former Confederates out of public office, out of the Senate, out of the Congress, and even out of some state offices. So when you read the 14th Amendment that way, you start to see, oh my God, it's not just to protect black people. It's really to keep those darn rebels out of power. Right, right. So one of the more hopeful parts of your book, you talk about black women mm -hmm. and uh, this new sense of citizenship and loyalty. Because I think the Freedmen's Bureau is 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 reaching out to black women to, mm -hmm. to testify and provide evidence of the violence that's occurring. So can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? It's one of the really interesting features of legal history that the U.S. military is one of the first to expand rights to black women, which go figure. And it actually started in rape cases during the war itself, where the federal government, or not the federal government, but the United States military, actually took black women seriously in their, in their protests and in their accusations of sexual assaults by soldiers. In this case, we're talking Union soldiers. Um, so uh, that was unusual. And by the time you get to the Freedmen's Bureau, then after the war, they took seriously women's accusations, not only of sexual assaults, but of a whole range of crime. In fact, all crime against them. What makes that so unique is that before the Civil War, women, these women could not testify. They could not bring charges. They could not appear in court. It's a, it's a massive sea change in our legal history, and one that kind of flies under the radar in many people's eyes. And it gave the, and these women took advantage of it, as you know, uh, reading the book. They, they pushed the, the boundaries as much as they could, including in Virginia, trying to pull off almost a Rosa Parks kind of situation on a train where uh, they got booted off a train car. And I bet that they set that up themselves to get booted off a segregated train car. And then they tried to take it to court. Unfortunately, I wasn't good enough to be able to find out how did that play out. They actually took the charges to a district attorney's office. And I just don't, I've lost the strand uh, after that. But it was an amazing, an amazingly quick turnaround in how women fought for themselves. You dedicated an entire chapter to Texas, which is interesting. Um, before the Civil War, there are actually quite a few unionists. I don't think it's ever a majority, mm -hmm. but there are unionists in Texas. Texas is also 
quite diverse. There's a lot of immigrants there. What's what's unique about Texas? <laughs> oh my gosh, you could go on for years. Um, the most unique part is that when we and it took us two years to go through you know nine microfilm reels and try to collect the data on on this. And so we 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 call them incident reports. One incident reports could actually have multiple crimes. You know, it may be three people who were arrested or whatever. And in one case, it was a hundred people who were killed uh, in one incident reports. So over the course of our uh, data collection, we we found like thirty nine hundred some odd incident reports, which probably had about five thousand or more people involved. Texas, over the three or actually four year period that we accounted for, six was it fifty seven percent? I'm trying. I'm blanking a little bit now. Fifty seven percent of all the crimes I think that were committed during that time period were, were Texas. So they were just far and away the worst place on earth for African Americans. In fact, the Red River Valley that spanned Texas and into Louisiana was probably the place if you were an African American you did not want to live during. 1865 to 1868. Lots of people were just gunned down and killed in that particular area. So I guess I went in there and trying to figure out what's, what is it about Texas? And as you pointed out, very diverse before the war, very substantive anti-secession community. And that carried through the war. There were uh, mass hangings of unionists by Confederates during the Civil War. And we're talking about battles between white people. So to me, when you had this hugely divided white society that was killing each other even during the war, and then you get to the post-war world and you add the potential of African Americans being able to vote with one of those groups and tip the power scale, and then you add the fact that there is a, you know, it's a huge state, and it was very hard for the federal government to really administer it and be, and be able to stretch enough personnel over that area to enforce justice. In fact, it was just about impossible. You add up all those things together, and what you have is a perfect storm of violence that occurred in Texas. So I just had to – and you had the other unique situation about Texas was that you eventually had an Army officer in Winfield Scott Hancock who was put in there to administer it. He was the one and only uh, – person in charge that I could find throughout the South who would not believe the freedmen were being persecuted. So you suddenly you turned around and you had to fight <laughs> the federal administrator who was supposed to help enforce justice, and he just wouldn't. He wouldn't lift a finger. Of course, he's a Democrat and somebody who was allied with Johnson, at least uh, yep. on occasion. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He was put in later because one of the guys I admire still and I keep admiring is Phil Sheridan, who is a tough son of a gun. And I didn't always admire him so much uh, before this, but he really took to heart um, keeping the rebels in, in tow. Uh, he administered tough justice. He wanted to make sure that the freed people received a fair shake. And if, he, if they didn't, he removed people from office. He would just boot out political figures. And that's what got him in trouble with Johnson. And that was one of the things that helped get Johnson in trouble with Congress and get him impeached. Right. So I want to close with a question you've already touched on and, and Dr. Gallagher uh, talked about last night. Was Reconstruction a lost moment? Uh, as he referred to uh, uh, Eric Foner, uh, Henry Louis Gates, mm. uh, historians who have talked about 
this was the moment it was possible there was momentum there there were there were things in place to achieve racial equality mm -hmm. in your eyes was it a lost moment no um when you get to the 1870s, what you see is a gradual shift through the late 1860s and early 1870s that really you can see in Ulysses S. Grant. Um, he didn't believe in racial equality either, although he believed firmly in equality before the law for everybody. And he is kind of a hero of mine in the book, to be honest. And I don't know if it came across that way, but I really admire Grant. But I, most people believed that what they had to do was give African-Americans, males, the right to vote. And then they could protect themselves. And it was up to them. Because the other thing, the, the only other thing that could happen to ensure racial equality would have been long-term occupation of the South with a military force that would have meddled in politics the whole time. Nobody was going to do that. That just had no political support. Uh, even among major Republican figures, frankly. Right, right. The book is The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. William A. Blair. Thank you so much. You can find it anywhere, right? It's a oh, yeah, UNC Press. It's pretty, it's pretty darn cheap, by the way. Yes, so. it is. I bought it on Kindle, I think, for nine ninety nine. Yeah. So, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.